The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So the basic formulation for our sitting practice is when, whenever we want to practice sitting meditation is to first have some sense of why we're doing it, knowing the intention or the aspiration. And with that energy, you know, that I want to take care of this heart, for example, maybe that's your aspiration to have a heart that isn't so weighed down, isn't so heavy in life. And then we show up in the present moment. This is our working ground. And then in the present moment, we're on the lookout for what takes us out of the present moment, all of our dramatic tendencies, right, to react to the moment with greed, to react with wantingness, to react with aversion or irritation, to react with denial. So we're on the lookout for those things. We call them the hindrances, the things that throw the mind out of the present moment, take the mind out of the present moment. And then to the degree that we're able to stay in the present, not get too thrown off by the hindrances that tend to arrive because of our, the way our mind's been conditioned, then we get a deeper sense of what the practice is about, which is renunciation. But it's a very specific kind of renunciation. We're renouncing the identification to experience or the attachment the mind has to what's arising in the present moment. It's not that what's arising in the present moment is a problem. Even despicable thoughts, lustful thoughts, terrible pain, none of this is itself a problem. The problem is with the mind, how the mind relates to these thoughts, to these sensations, to these experiences. So this is the understanding the path as not clinging, not attaching to phenomena, to what comes and goes in our lives. And so in terms of thinking about, well, what does our practice look like in daily life? It's really the same thing. Our sitting practice is just a, a more refined way of living. You know, it's just that instead of being out in the world and talking and getting things done, we're sitting on a cushion or sitting on a chair following our breath in and out and noticing distractions. But it's still living. And so we want to do exactly the same in our daily life. We want to remember, as we're going about our day, we want to remember our intention. Because it's so easy to think that our day is about getting to the end of the day, or our day is about accomplishing this task. And we forget that actually getting this task done doesn't in itself make me happy. What makes me actually happy is whether my heart is burdened or not. So if I do this task and all I am doing is really burdening my heart in doing this task, whatever's in front of me, because I resent the fact that I have to do it, for example. You know, your kid asks you to do something with him, or your cat <laughs> demands you to pet her or something like that. But you don't want to, but you do it anyway, you know, because you think you have to. Well, that doesn't make us happy. It makes us resentful. But if we remembered our intention, then we'd wake up. We'd go, wait a minute. I'm living in order to be free of resentment in this case. But here I am generating resentment. 
So this doesn't make sense because I'm not living in alignment with my deep aspiration to be free from a heart full of resentment or full of craving or full of whatever agitated, afflictive state that we might be reinforcing. So we want to, in our daily life, we want to remember freedom. Or, you know, if you don't like that word freedom, just find a word that for you holds your deepest aspiration. And see, what we do is we, we tend to sell ourselves short. So when I say to you now, you know, have a word that represents your deepest aspiration, if you're like me, if we're not paying close attention, we might like, oh yeah, I want a place out in the country. I mean, you might have a specific image that represents something for you. Like for me, in a superficial way, I mean, I understand how superficial this is, but for me, when I think about that, it somehow represents not having burdens. You know, being out there, no responsibilities, not a huge to-do list that isn't getting done. But of course, it would just be more to do. <laughs> but that, as an image, it just represents somehow being free of all the stuff I want to be free of. But what's really important is not to get caught there, but to take a step back and recognize, actually, I want to be free. To get right to that feeling, oh, there's, this heart is burdened, and actually what I aspire to, what I really want in my life, is for this heart not to feel burdened. And so that image of having a place out in the country is just a placeholder. But this is the aspiration for this heart to be free. And that really, then, then all of a sudden, we get clearer about what we're doing in our life if we remember that. Otherwise, we can be very blinded. I can be blindly trying to raise enough money to be able to buy that house, right? Creating a lot of problems for myself and others around me in doing that, you know, only to get a house that, that is, an, you know, a burden. <laughs> and this is what we tend to do. We seek happiness, but because we haven't clarified our present moment situation, the ways that we seek happiness tend to create more stress for us. And on and on and on, layer after layer. And so we get frustrated and exhausted, and then we strike out, you know, we get aggressive. We get, um, cause we become violent to ourselves and others. And, uh, which only makes us want to escape even more, makes us more desperate to have some image to strive after. So this is not some superficial instruction, understanding our intention, our deepest intention, our deepest aspiration, and staying with it, not just when we're sitting, but throughout the day. It actually totally reorients our life if we remember that May this heart be free. And the, the, the amazing thing is, it sets in motion so many good things, because if we're recognizing that our heart is burdened and that we wish for it to be free, then it's pretty easy for us, it's relatively easy at least, for us to recognize that our partner also has a burdened heart, and he or she also wants to be free. You know, and our neighbor, and our boss, and, you know, even George Bush. He has a heart that's burdened. He wants to be free too. Whether he knows it or anybody knows it or not, everybody wants to be free. And all of a sudden we start feeling a lot closer to everybody else. 
and it's just harder to be mean and uh, hurtful in the world. So um, I'm thinking we'll be talking about taking the practice into daily life for several months. Sometimes, like tonight, I'll talk more generally. And sometimes, hopefully, people will help me think of places in life that we have this specific question, like, well, how, what does practice look like when I'm, you know, falling in love? Or what does practice look like when I have to deal with a sticky situation at work? Or go home to see my parents? Or, you know, and you can just fill in the blank. And we can really translate some of these principles of, like, how do you remember, how, does, how do I remember my intention in that situation? How do I remember the working ground, right? The working ground is just the present moment. So we take the energy that gener gets generated from our aspiration, like we feel motivated when we remember our, our aspiration to be free. So we take that energy and we direct it toward the present moment to show up, to remember, to show up, to be aware that here it is, this present moment. It's like this, right now. And then in that present moment, we have to practice with the hindrances. And this is especially true in daily life because the more we're moving around the world, seeing people, hearing things, having physical sensations, the hindrances are getting triggered all the time. All you have to do is look at the people in this room for a while. I mean, most of you are seeing the back of people's heads. But if you looked around at people's faces and the way they're dressed, all kinds of hindrances would be triggered. You know, you'd be aversive to some people because your mind would immediately judge them. You know, you just sort of, the way our mind's conditioned, there's no way we can stop ourselves from doing this, by the way. So don't try, because your tendency then would be to hate yourself for doing this, which is just more of the same. But naturally, the way our minds are conditioned, when we see certain people, we judge them harshly. We see other people, and we like them. We want to get to know them, or we want to go to bed with them. And that's just how it is. That's how our mind is. And it's the same thing when you move your body. I used to do a lot of yoga. And I even, I was a teacher for many years, a yoga teacher for many years. And uh, one of the things I started to notice, uh, mostly unconsciously, and then it became really conscious, is that just in moving my body, just in doing hatha yoga, or even other kinds of meditation, or uh, mindful movement uh, practices like tai chi or qigong, um, or just walking, that just stimulating the body sort of brings up a lot of stuff for me. You know, it's like one of the nice things, the reason why the formal meditation practice is done in stillness is the more still the body, the less stuff is being triggered. And the more you move your body, the more stuff gets triggered. Now. It's generally great that stuff gets triggered because then we can see it and we can practice with it. But generally, it's too much stuff. <laughs> so we get swept away with it. But so this is, the, this is the real important thing about working in daily life is we have to appreciate how much of our conditioning is getting triggered by what we're seeing, what we're smelling, what we're thinking what we're sensing tactically, tactilely in the body. All of these things are stimulating our conditioning, are kind of provoking, <laughs> evoking our emotional habit energy. 
It's getting triggered all the time in the day. So we have to really be practicing skillfully with the hindrances that get triggered, all the different flavors of craving that get triggered. You know, like if we were to observe a film of ourselves, you know, in our daily life, we'd see we're constantly moving the body, you know. We're unconscious of it most of the time, but we're feeling a little unpleasant sensation here, so we move, and then after a few seconds we're feeling unpleasant sensation, so we adjust. And then we're just anticipating it's going to be unpleasant, so we move, and we're just constantly moving. And it's the same thing with the mind. The mind thinks about one thing, and then after a few seconds it's unpleasant to continue thinking that, so it thinks about something else, and then it thinks about something else. And it's just... Basically, we're being provoked by the hindrances. Irritation, subtle forms of irritation, subtle forms of craving, hopefulness, wanting things to be. It's really, uh, in a way, a a kind of self-stimulation, except there's nobody doing it. So it's just, uh, this is what we call samsara, the cycles of suffering in Buddhism. It's just the pattern for agitation to create agitation to create agitation. And so there's an ongoing stream of mental agitation. And so to practice in daily life, of course, we want to give ourselves uh, some sort of possibility. So we try to keep things relatively simple. You know, Instead of having talk radio on, a conversation going on, and we're doing something else, you know, all three of which are agitating the mind, which we're oblivious to. Maybe if we're just doing one thing, we might actually realize the agitation that's arising. And we can just work with it skillfully as a mindfulness object. Oh, agitation is like this. And remember, with the hindrances, we have to remember, you know, first, just to recognize that. That's the biggest step with any of the (coughs) agitated mind states. Because the impulse is to immediately think it's a problem that the mind's judging, or that the mind's craving, or that the mind's bored. But what we want to do in a very simple, straightforward way is just recognize, well, this is what's happening. There's boredom in the mind, and it's like this. There's resentment in the mind, and it's like this. So there's a nice acronym to remember in terms of working with the hindrances, whether you're doing it on the fly in your daily life or you're doing it in your city meditation practice, and it's RAIN, R-A-I-N. So if you remember these four letters, RAIN, you can just kind of remember the mental qualities you all need to be skillful with hindrances or with any phenomena. You want to recognize it, A, you probably can guess, is acceptance. I is to investigate or be interested. And N is non-attachment, non-identification. Okay? So recognize, accept, or don't act out. You know, so not acting out the irritation. Just allow it to be. Investigate. If you tend to be someone who holds back, then your investigation might appear to you to be quite active, like you're really, in a sense, putting your mind, putting your attention on what it doesn't want to see. But if you tend to be a hypervigilant person, 
controlling type, then the interest or investigation is has a quality of just you're just sitting here in the space of the present moment and you're allowing the resistance or the reactivity, whatever it is in that moment, to just reveal itself. You're kind of giving it space to reveal itself. So it looks different for different people. If you're a hyper vigilant controlling type and you hear, oh, investigate, you're going to overdo it. <laughs> or, you know, if, you're, uh, if you tend to be someone who just lets the world run over you and you're afraid to kind of put yourself out in the world, then you might not be as aggressive or as uh, forceful as you need to be to kind of overcome that mental conditioning to sort of hold back, to not look closely, to be afraid. So you just have to understand for you and in, in this moment what does skillful investigation or interest look like for you. And then non-attachment is that all of that stuff, the recognition, the acceptance, the investigation, all of that can just be what it is. We don't have to take it personally. Even the whole activity of being mindful of resentment or mindful of irritation or mindful of boredom, even that doesn't need to be seen as a personal activity, that I'm doing it. It's just what's happening. So even the mindfulness, even the there you are going to visit your parents, you know, and you see your mom and all of a sudden this old primitive emotional stuff comes to the surface and you remember, you know, your intention not to be bound up, <laughs> not to be weighed down. So you remember, oh yeah, Mark. He said, rain, okay. Recognize, oh yeah, humiliation is like this. <laughs> oh yeah, humiliation. And not acting it out, you know, like not blaming your mom or however you might act it out, not blaming yourself. And interest, like, wow, wow, this is amazing. I mean, it's like, you know, when you're, when you go on a nature hike and you see amazing things in nature. Wow, this is an amazing plant. Some of you might have heard on NPR, they had, uh, they're doing a series of reports on global warming and they were, uh, did a report in Joshua Tree National Monument or National Park, I forget what it is in California, and uh, just talking about like it's an amazing plant and uh, they're having a harder time as the earth heats up to survive. But just what an amazing plant it is. And we can have that same kind of interest, like some of those people they were interviewing, some of the ecologists and scientists they were interviewing, who were completely fascinated by this tree. We can be completely fascinated, interested in these different conditional patterns, emotional patterns that get triggered at different times. Oh, humiliation. Wow, this is an amazing sort of interplay of sensation, emotion, thought, image. Wow. Wow, isn't this amazing? And to kind of give it space to do its thing, which is to move, to change, to evolve, to provoke, to evoke, right? I mean, it's going to do all of those things. And it's like just uh, allowing it. When we're space, when we're just the space of awareness, it doesn't actually, it isn't threatening. But if I'm somebody, who's afraid of being humiliated, who feels like they're done with being humiliated. I already, <laughs> people say, you know, I've done therapy for two years. <laughs> I'm not going to be humiliated anymore. But it's not done until it's done, until it doesn't happen anymore. So if it's happening, then we can be assured that it's happening. 
<laughs> it's not a question of whether it should happen. And so that, that sort of unconditional acceptance, allowing it to be, because it is this way, and to be interested in it, and that whole process of just being there right with it, we don't even want to say, oh, I'm good, I'm really with it, you know, I'm good. That, that's even too much to, to get identified with the process of being mindful. It's just what the mind does now. This is what a wise mind does. It's mindful. It is the space that knows this is how it is. And gives more and more as much as whatever it is that's happening requires in that moment. So you can remember this rain, because this is so important to have any deep insight as we're going through the day. We have to get quite skillful at not getting lost in the hindrances when they come. And if you haven't been around, I've been using the traditional list the Buddha used for the five hindrances. You could probably come up with a, you know, a hundred different groups of hindrances that would include everything. But you could just use this one and just make sure that all the different hindrances you discover in your heart or mind fit under one of these five categories. So there's all the different flavors of craving, all the different flavors of aversion, and then the next two are energy imbalances, all the different flavors of restlessness, too much energy, all the different flavors of dullness, too little energy, sleepiness, torpor, and then skeptical doubt, where the mind just, just isn't trusting that it knows what it's supposed to be doing. And so it thinks about, you know, and, and doubts itself. And so we never do anything. We just think about it. So we can look at these, now, they overlap. Like skeptical doubt has a lot to do with restlessness. You know, that sort of not really landing in the moment, but just, you know, is this right? Well, that's a kind of restlessness. So you can have a multiple hindrance attack, as Jack Hartzell says in his book, Path with Heart. He has a nice chapter on the hindrances in that book. And so it's really nice when you feel afflicted in your daily life, it would be it could be quite skillful. I mean at first I mean, later you might not need to do this, but in the beginning, for the first hundred lifetimes or so, it can be quite useful to say to ourselves, Okay, I'm suffering, so what emotional mental patterns are alive here in the present moment? that aren't wholesome. Because if there's suffering, there's, there's something unwholesome going on in the mind. A wholesome heart, a wholesome mind doesn't suffer. It feels good. So if we're feeling afflicted, that means there's something afflicting. So we can actually see it. And then you can just ask, is what, what, what is its particular flavor? Aversive, aversion, craving, energy imbalance, or doubt. So you might even think about today, like maybe you felt burdened different times today. And it's and you'll notice, like I do probably, like when I think about some of the mind states that were afflicting me today, it's like it, it was aversion, you know, but, I, but my mind doesn't want to put it in that category because it's not aversion. <laughs> you know how that is? It's like, like, I need to figure this out. I need to figure out what to say to this person or how to defend myself. But 
that's just being lost in the story. The actual flavor of the whole package, we have to take in a sense, it's not really this way, but in a sense we have to take several steps back so we kind of see, oh, the whole shape of the mind, that's the shape of aversion. This is the color of aversion, the flavor of aversion, hatred, not liking, wanting to destroy, wanting to hide, protect herself, that's all about aversion. Just like craving is all about leaning into, wanting, wanting to stay close, wanting to protect, not wanting things to go away. That sticky quality. So, um, we, after some practice then, we don't even need to ask ourselves, you know, what's the flavor, because what we'll do when, when the, we kind of get the sense of the practices, we'll just drop into the moment, <clears throat> and it's like we recognize the taste immediately. This is sour, this is sweet, this is bitter. <coughs> we'll know immediately what it is. And you may, ne you may not even need to label it. It may be actually extra to label it, or distracting to actually do a mental label at that point. Oh, this is aversion. You might not need to say that in your mind. You just know it intuitively. Oh, it's like this. It's like this. And right away, the four qualities of recognition, acceptance, investigation, or a more pure interest, and non-attachment, they just arise. It's like the four of them together is just a moment of being mindful or present with what's real in the moment. But in the beginning, it's nice to have these sort of techniques, you know, like to remember when we're feeling burden, well, there must be something going on. So let me look at it in terms of the five hindrances. So you're doing a, a kind of mental reflection. You're using your thoughts to help you see more clearly what's going on. So this is a situation where thinking can be quite useful, where we're using the concept of the Buddhist five hindrances, and we're using our thinking mind and our sort of intuitive mindful seeing to kind of analyze the present moment experience in terms of these five hindrances. And then after we figured out which one of them it is, we can bring in another concept of RAINE, R-A-I-N-E. Okay, oh yeah, recognize, okay. So let me practice recognizing this. Okay, this is this tight feeling in the heart. There's lots of thoughts about that tight feeling in the heart and images, but actually what's at the bottom of this present moment experience is just this tight feeling in my heart. And it's like this, that's recognition. Now, can I accept this? Not act it out. Can I just allow this tightness or burning or hardness or whatever that kind of essence of the emotional feeling is in that moment, can I just allow it to be? And then the investigation is like really uh, sort of allowing it to reveal itself. And so for me, what I, for me what this means is we're actually starting to allow it to move. Because at first it's like, okay, I'm willing to be with this if I feel in control. But then when we start to investigate, it's like we're giving up our control. We're allowing it to get as big as it needs to get, to shift, to morph, to get, you know, angry, to attack, so that we're being undefended. And, you know, all of this, of course, takes practice. And if we can practice with those three, then then naturally the non-attachment arises or the non-identification because you can't really fully investigate a present moment happening unless you're free of attachment. The attachment 
deludes the mind. Because you can't see things clearly to whatever degree there's identification or attachment to what's going on. We're blinded by that. So the non-attachment is sort of something we recognize when we have the recognition, the acceptance, and the appropriate investigation. And then we realize the heart's not attached. It's not identified. And so it's not a problem. All of a sudden, anger, whatever it is that we're being mindful of, it's no longer a problem because the mind is now dominated with mindfulness, which is a quite wholesome state of mind, not anger, which is an unwholesome state of mind. Mindfulness of anger is a very wholesome state of mind. Anger is a very unwholesome state of mind. Being identified with the anger is unwholesome. So we can go from being in a very unwholesome place and then through the process of waking up, being mindful of that unwholesomeness, we transform our heart to a very wholesome heart. We feel free. When you're mindful of an afflictive state, really mindful of it, you feel free. You don't feel burdened by it. So in this sense, in the ultimate sense, a moment of mindfulness is truly a moment of freedom. So if we don't feel free, our mindfulness hasn't come into balance yet. It's off. And then we should use whatever mindfulness, whatever sense of presence we have, to look at how we're off, which means feel the burden, feel the agitation, feel the lack of pure, full contentment in that moment, and look at it. We just look. Because our aspiration is to be happy, to be free, and here it is. I'm not free. I'm not perfectly content. So let me look at that. And what we do is we transmute it by being mindful of the limitations in our life. We become free. Now, just before this talk, uh, before the yoga class, before this talk, I was sitting there preparing. And as I mentioned earlier, my heart was a little bit agitated today. And at times, not a little bit, a lot agitated. And uh, so it occurred to me, <laughs> it's surprising how little it does, but preparing, preparing to talk about mindfulness, it's surprising how I can be there venting, you know, kind of chewing on my stuff, and it won't occur to me to sort of apply the teaching. <laughs> but at some moment, it did occur to me. And, and just sitting there, you know, seeing that there I was, a suffering human being. And just to, to really get that, and, to, and then because I practiced a lot, and I think this is, this is even true for people who are relatively new to practice, when we really see ourselves as a suffering being, on some level, it may be quite faint, but on some level we recognize it doesn't have to be this way. That, that given the particulars of this moment, suffering is not inevitable. That there's a, there's a way to be in this moment that doesn't involve suffering. And so that just arose. Like how inappropriate it was to be a suffering human being. Not that it was bad. It wasn't that feeling like, oh, I'm bad for being a suffering human being. But just that it was unnecessary. It was really unnecessary. And it was just... There is, and I mentioned this in the guided sit tonight, there is no space. It doesn't take any distance for the heart to flip from being a suffering human being to the heart being unburdened. 
We just have to understand. And then in that moment of understanding, the whole practice comes into place, comes into being. And this is the real fruit of kind of slogging our way through and remembering these techniques, and remembering the five hindrances so we can get a little clarity about what we're being afflicted with right now, and then remembering like the different qualities of mindfulness. You've got to recognize what's going on. You have to accept or not act it out. You have to generate some kind of interest. You have to really shed layers and layers of identification and attachment because it's always more subtle. You know, we get rid of the more gross kinds of identification, and then we realize we're still identified with the process in some way. And so we have to let go of that and let go of that. But it, be, it begins to be just intuitive. Now we don't have to think our way through the practice. It just sort of becomes the habit of the mind. The mind knows how to flip itself. And all it needs, it only requires one thing for that flip to happen. It has to honestly see the moment as a suffering being. Like it's got to recognize there is a suffering being right now, and this is how it is. And it's that seeing the suffering in the present moment that ignites whatever practice we've done in the past, it ignites that. So if we haven't done much practice in the past, there won't be that much momentum. But if there's been a lot of practice in the past, a lot of moments where we've consciously, intentionally cultivated awareness and non-attachment and interest in especially mental phenomena are patterns, mental patterns, then momentum really can uh, arise very quickly. And we can move from being really caught up to being free. Of course, we can go the other direction very quickly, too. Because often when we have a moment of feeling unafflicted, we relax. We say, oh, God, what was that all about? You know, I feel good now. And then 10 seconds later, the image of the person comes back to your mind, or the image of the situation, the memory comes back to your mind, and your mind does the same thing it did two hours ago. You know, oh, yeah, what was that? And there you are chewing on it again. You generate the same afflicted state. At some point, you know, we remember, oh, a suffering human being is like this. And then the flip can happen again. And the key is, no matter how many times we lose it, when we wake up and see it, there's no need to judge ourselves. Because if we judge ourselves in that moment, then we're just hating it. Well, that's just the practice of hatred. The key is just to let the practice be the practice, which is to recognize what's predominant, to accept it completely, to be interested in it, to let it reveal itself as it really is, to let it move, and to not be attached in any way, to let things be conditional, like to come and go naturally, lawfully. We don't have to be in control of them coming and going. And this is where the freedom is. So I thought we could take a little time tonight to uh, just, uh, I mean, of course, ask any questions about the talk, but also to maybe share some thoughts about, you know, specific parts of life that might be interesting for us to take a month or a couple weeks to look at. And there are a number of ways that we can do that, but I thought I'd just open it up. We have about 15 or 20 minutes to talk together. 
So any questions about the talk tonight, about practicing in daily life, about this acronym RAIN and how to use that? What comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Maria. Um, this is a question about RAIN. The first time you said Recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-attachment. And then I thought at some point you said you added an E to the end of it. E? Oh, sorry. (laughs) I've never been a good speller. (laughs) But I do know how rain is spelled. That was just the slip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be equanimity. Thanks for clearing that up, Maria. (laughs) (laughs) Any other thoughts, Tony? Uh, Could you talk more about the fifth hindrance, the um, doubting mind, or something like that? Yeah. Like I mentioned, for me, especially with doubt, it has some of the other flavors, like restlessness and also aversion. Um, Like, for me, doubt was a it still is, but certainly in the, in the past has been a very common mind state for me, for this mind. And, and uh, it was related to um, not feeling good enough. You know, and th- so that was, so the doubting, doubting my ability to practice, doubting whether this experience was good enough, whether I was good enough, whether I could do the practice, whether I understood the practice correctly, or just how to, so it can be doubt about the specific practice, but it can just be doubt about any part of your life. Like, are you a good enough mother? Are you a good enough partner? Are you a good enough employee? Are you, you know, whatever. And that doubt then leads to a kind of thinking that doesn't resolve the doubt. That's the key with doubt, is it leads to an activity that doesn't resolve the doubt. And the way the Buddha described it, the the way to uh, move beyond doubt is for the mind to connect with things as they are, to have a moment of mindfulness. Because when we're just feeling the hand, you know, if we just put our attention in our hand fully, just feeling the, the sensation of the air touching the skin or the vibration, the subtle sensations of the hand, there's there's absolutely no doubt in the mind when you're just aware of the hand or you feel a breeze against the skin or you hear a sound of a bird there's no doubt in that doubt only arises when we've sort of uh, gotten into the our concepts our ideas about the world and because those ideas aren't really grounded in anything they're sort of a house of car- cards sort of built up it's easy to have doubt about our ideas about things so when you find that there's a lot of doubt in your mind, see if you can do something that you can really ground in, like really connect to, whatever it is. Like give yourself completely to something, whether it's knitting or walking or taking a bath, but just do it with your whole heart. Like this is all you're doing now. And that will break the cycle of doubt. That's one way to break the cycle of doubt.
the deeper way, of course, is to see doubt as a, an empty mental phenomenon. You know, you just see it with mindfulness, and you you go right to the end in rain, which is the non-attachment, the non-identification. So you're seeing the activity of doubt without it belonging to anybody. And once you see that a couple of times, it really begins to undermine the tendency to take it personally when doubt is in the mind. And it still will continue because it probably, for a lot of us, has momentum. You know, it, it's been conditioned for a long time. We've gotten identified with it in the past, so it has some momentum. But if we're no longer getting identified with it, then it, it wears out its momentum. You know, it, it basically happens less and less frequently. Because I found that I'm more doubtful because I'm avoiding aversion. At least I feel like I'm avoiding an aversive situation. So it's, it seems like it's easier to be doubtful than to make a choice. Yeah. Thanks, Tony. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Other thoughts people have or places in life where you would like to focus your energy, your mindfulness practice? Mm -hmm. Yes, Mark, this is Paisal. I'm just wondering if when people from the front think if you could repeat what they say for those of us who can't hear. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hear what Tony had to say? Sure. <laughs> 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 what I said was I asked him about the fifth hindrance, about the doubtful mind. And you know how, and then he responded to it. And then the last comment was had had to do with being doubtful uh, in an attempt to avoid aversion, making a, a decision because a decision either way would be aversive, that kind of thing. And okay. then, he, then he wished me good luck. But if we keep paying attention, you'll see that doubt is no answer because it, it itself is a frustrating unpleasant experience. So you're avoiding the aversion but by creating another unpleasant experience. And so eventually that will dawn on the mind. You know, we'll just see that this isn't working either. In the back? So real loud because we have some people around the corner here too. Um, I'm very insightful, and some of the white students, you know, maybe 
something that I thought about this stuff very much, you know, and so for me, I felt like in the mo my moments of anger were not just my moments, it was like I felt like I was tapping into this larger sort of cultural, historical anger, and I think, and, and the, this, how, this power displaced power dynamic has been displaced for generations, you know, and mm -hmm. so I think in my daily life where I just feel like it's, it's more just me, you know, it's just, just me right now, then I feel more like I'm able to really have those moments of the rain thing, and I'm able to really just kind of step back. You know, but I think for me, the moments where I feel like the most like, oh my God, I get totally sucked into this, you know, are those moments where I feel like it's really not just about me and my own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. What's your name? Shannon. Shannon. Did everybody hear Shannon? And I, I, the way, I think the easy way just to sum up what you said, Shannon, because I, I don't think it's so much about whether someone is tapping into an archetypal kind of emotional pattern or a personal. It's just really a matter of the strength. Because in a way, every personal emotional pattern is archetypal. You know, it's just that we don't see it that way often. But actually, they probably are just, they are just as much. But because of the particular situation that you described, the, it, you were able to maybe be sensitive to a lot more power of that emotion, right? And so it felt more real because of its power, as opposed to another thing that might arise in your daily life that doesn't seem as powerful, and so therefore it's more workable in terms of practice. And that's just the basic principle. We start where it's easy. And so you can have the aspiration to be in the middle of that discussion, in the middle of all of that energy that can come up, the rage, the injustice, the denial. I mean, you probably can see everything if you're really careful. You can see every part of the whole package of suffering, every point of view, and, and, uh, but not be swept away. You know, and maybe over the course of years of doing it, revisiting this, you can kind of have that aspiration to be more real with it, with your students, but also a, a sense of being free in the midst of that. All this stuff that you're feeling in you, your heart, in the heart, in the room, in their hearts. And, uh, and that's really great because then you're really, uh, you're modeling how to be intimate with a world like we actually live in and not but not be intimate I mean not not be engaged with any kind of denial or any sort of set plan but just to be real with it and to let our hearts be touched by seeing things as they are and then we'll respond a lot more creatively and uh, probably powerfully to what's going on yeah I mean it's uh, it's really got to be an aspiration that we can open to the world as it is. Because actually, I don't know, I'm not able to open to the world as it is. You know, I can imagine it. But uh, I know if I actually look into the eyes of people, I don't, I don't need to go to another country. If I just look into the eyes of 
people that have a lot of suffering, I feel this very strong compulsion to look away, to not want to be intimate. And uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in that in that regard. So we, this can inspire us that to, we want to be able to be totally there, just with the people that we're obliged to be there with, like our family members, let alone our neighbors and people three blocks away from us, which would be really nice to be able to to be there. Someone gave me Sue Cochran. Some of you know her. She's one of the leaders here. She gave me. Um, an article from Naomi something Remen. She's a well-known physician. She's written a couple of famous books and has run these cancer retreats out at the Commonwealth in Northern California. I used to go out there for retreats when I lived out in the Bay Area. It's just a beautiful place. And they've been doing these cancer retreats for a long time. And they use a lot of meditation there and yoga and other things and a lot of group processing. And uh, one of her better-known books is, is a kitchen table Wisdom? Yeah. yeah. And in that book, she has a section where she talks about uh, a time she got to see um, Carl Rogers do some therapy. I don't know if you know Carl Rogers, but people nowadays probably think of this therapeutic technique as sort of not being much of anything. But he made quite a splash back when he was doing his thing. And it's very much like awareness practice, what he did. He, he uh, would sit down with the person that had come to see him, and his job was to uh, regard that person unconditionally with kindness, just to be fully present with a loving heart. But actually, being fully present means you're there with a loving heart, so you don't even need to add that part. If you're fully present, that means any sort of defensiveness or absence of intimacy has been shed, at least in those moments, at least to some degree. And uh, he was just modeling this. It wasn't even like a real therapeutic situation. He was there with a bunch of doctors, kind of talking to them about this sort of technique that he has, that he was teaching. <clears throat> and so he just asked for one of the doctors to volunteer. And so one of the doctors volunteered to pretend to be a, a patient or a client or whatever. And so he just, uh, and he starts by sort of recognizing his own humanity humanity, which I would translate to being like, recognize that I'm a suffering human being here, and getting really real, present with that, and then, then being fully present with the heart, this heart, this mind and heart as it is, then allows us to, to be intimate and present with the person in front of us. And, uh, and she talked about how this guy, this doctor, was just pretending to be a client, you know, in the course of their interaction, you know, he just shed layer and layer and layer. And the whole group who, who was observing this just started to shed layer and layer and layer. And uh, it was just this very powerful transforming experience, even though it was just a setup. I mean, it wasn't even a real situation. I mean, of course, it was a real situation. That's why it was transforming. So there's a real power to just being able to uh, unconditionally be in the middle of life. It's just, it's the way to really take care of everybody around us as well as ourselves. Her other book is quite good too, Grandfather's Blessings. It, there are a few of these sort of new agey books that are real gems. And she's, she's one of those people. 
she seems like if you read her stuff at first, you kind of go, I mean, people like me who tend to be aversive kind of go, oh. <laughs> but then, then if you just stick around with it a while, you realize she's totally sincere. <laughs> she's not putting, you know, not pretending to be who she is. And uh, she really pulls you in. We have just a minute or two if anybody has any closing thoughts for the group. I have a question for you. Um, just in terms of the, the words, both like aversion and agitation, those kind of words. So there's no words that name emotions. Is, is there a reason for that? Such as maybe the like uh, fear being related to aversion and anger, agitation. Is that No, I, I think these things are emotions. I'd call them emotions. You know, the five hindrances? I'd call them five emotions. And, uh, yeah, emotion's a neat word. I like the word emotion. Because it, it really, um, it gets us from the content. When we, when we f reflect on the word emotion, it can take us away from the content and actually to the what's actually moving in the heart. And... Often when we feel emotions, they're not moving. So we might forget that they're actually, they move. And, uh, and the more we learn how to relate to them skillfully, the more we see that emotions move. Love moves. Hatred moves. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a movement of energy in the heart. I mean, not just in the heart, but generally, you know, we tend to feel... I include the heart, it's kind of, you know, this space right here where we feel things. You know, when we feel bound up, we feel it there. I don't know if that gets at what you were asking, David. It's enough. I appreciate it. I don't know that I was looking for one answer. Yeah. Let's let it go here. Take a few seconds and let go of the words.